Hello listeners, welcome to Explore FI Canada, where we sit at the round table with Canadians and share their thoughts, ideas and personal journeys to financial independence. Thanks to Matt McKeever for sponsoring Explore FI Canada. Matt is a Canadian investor, CPA, entrepreneur and real estate expert who achieved fire at age 31. Do us a favor and check out his YouTube channel by searching Matt McKeever or using the link in our show notes. Welcome back to Explorify Canada listeners. Nice to have you with us again. It is the Money Mechanic. And of course, Chrissy is with me. Hello. How are you doing, Money Mechanic? Good, good. Just as I mentioned, mushrooming away here down in the, <laughs> down in the basement, but uh, it's fantastic. Hey, we've got a great show again this week. We have Tara joining us from the Yukon. We are wrapping around Canada as promised, so it's exciting to have our first guest from the Yukon. Welcome to the show, Tara. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. You have quite a few unique aspects of your FI journey that we would like to share with our audience. Yeah. Give us a quick little rundown about whereabouts you are and... Uh, just bring us up to speed on that before we get too deep into everything else. For sure. Yeah. So I'm in Whitehorse, Yukon, which is the capital of Yukon. Um, and I was born and raised here. Um, I left a couple times for school, but I always ended up making my way back here. So yeah, living in my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it that keeps bringing you back to your hometown? To be honest, there's such good opportunity here. You know, many people think we're pretty isolated up here, but we're really not. And we have everything you could possibly need. And there's great jobs, um, lots of opportunities in terms of getting higher paying jobs. There's not as much competition and just, yeah, generally better opportunities, I find, just throughout, you know, growing up and even as an adult. Is that because people uh, like migrate away from Whitehorse or is it just the population is pretty flat, but there's all sort of jobs available? Yeah, I think a lot of people actually can't deal with the winters. That is one thing that is a bit harder, especially this winter with COVID and everything. It was pretty rough, but I think that kind of manages the population. Although I think there are a lot of people that sort of find out about the Yukon, especially actually Ontario people. And we have a lot of uh, Ontario transplants. So yeah, it just kind of depends. Um, if you're an outdoorsy person, usually people stay and they really like it here. If you're more of a city person or if you can't handle the cold, then you're likely going to leave. So I think it kind of balances out in the end. So just in general, do you think that a lot of the older population tends to move away in, you know, does that help the job markets, you know, kind of like that, the traditional retirement age people, if they're not stuck there with family or, or wanting to be with family and moved somewhere warmer, does that help the job market as well? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people retire and move down to the island, um, Vancouver <laughs> Island. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. But we also have quite a bit of retirees here as well. Right. Yeah. Okay. And what would you say about the expenses? I know you listened to Scott's episode. He's in Northwest Territory. Yeah. Uh, it's how very does, similar. It's very similar. Okay. So you get the transfer payments from the government, that kind of thing. And Yeah. So okay. we get a Northern living allowance and then um, we get a bit of extra travel tax credits as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So overall, do you find that you have the higher salaries? Some things are more expensive, but overall, the cost of living, would you say, is lower than, say, in Vancouver or Toronto, one of the big cities? Yeah, it's certainly lower than the bigger cities. I would say it's probably comparable to, like, Vancouver Island, though, mm, or okay. other parts of BC. I think 
uh, from talking to friends that are from BC and actually my brother lives in Nanaimo. Um, I think the expenses are a bit lower on the island. So, but pay is way higher. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I used to work for the government here and I looked at very comparable jobs down on the island and I would have been taking like a $30,000 pay cut. So that's huge. Yeah. And that's like a communications job in government. Crazy. And why is it, why do they pay you more? I mean, for a communications (laughs) job, I'm just curious because I I know that they sometimes pay more to attract doctors, for instance, but yeah, I think it is, uh, has a lot to do with attracting people here and keeping people Mm -hmm. here. It's, one of the biggest struggles I think is for employers here is getting good people and keeping them because it's not very competitive. You know, it's more of like a, a job seekers market as opposed <laughs> to like an employer's market. Yeah. So I think for sure, just kind of retention. That makes sense. So somebody could potentially move up there with, you know, possibly transfer from another equivalent job, make a whole bunch more money, speed up their Mm -hmm. journey to FI, live some interesting (laughs) years up there, and then uh, move to Nanaimo, right? I mean, that's a possibility, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be great if more people came here. I would love that. Would you? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not too worried about uh, competition at this point. (laughs) So, (laughs) Do you get a sense of, is there any kind of uh, FI community or fire community there? I mean, uh, it's sort of spread a lot across Canada. There's individual groups in sort of Vancouver and Toronto and all the big cities have like a Choose FI Canada group or Choose FI Toronto group. Is there any community that you've met, any other people in that area that you can kind of relate your story to and talk about fire and things like that? Not really, to be honest. One time I was at a coffee shop and I overheard a guy having a conversation about Bitcoin. And that was the <laughs> basically the only conversation I've ever had with someone here. I know of another guy who's super into FI and I've never connected with him. It's, I've met him through work. But yeah, actually, that, hmm. to be honest, is one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you guys was because I thought if anyone from the Yukon listens, then maybe they'll reach out. And <laughs> yeah, you can it'd be cool to have group. a... Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so nice to have a local group, you know, even just a few people just to sort of bounce some ideas off or like, oh, hey, there's stuff in the classifieds that's a great deal or, you know, mm-hmm. odds and ends like that. For sure. Well, that's pretty cool. I'm glad you joined us. Let's talk a little bit about your journey to FI. Uh, you mentioned that you worked for the Yukon government for a while, but you don't anymore. Let's just back into that a little bit and, and fill us in on what you used to do and where you're going now. Yeah. So um, just for some context, like, so I was born without my left hand and throughout my life, it really didn't affect me much like physically or anything. Um, So I was always able to work a full-time job and, you know, use all the equipment I needed to. But about four years ago, I started developing overuse injuries in my dominant arm. And so at that point, um, you know, I was making really good money. I owned a house, but I was living paycheck to paycheck. And I kind of realized at that time that, you know, this could be something that sort of threatens my ability to earn a good income and work a full-time job. So I kind of started getting into FI or personal finance stuff at that point. I ended up uh, sort of slowly going down to part-time work through the government just to sort of manage my pain levels. And I ended up selling my house because at the time I was dating someone and he owned his own house too. So we thought, why don't we move in together? I moved into his place and, you know, we filled up all the rooms. And so we've got super low expenses and all that. Um, And then about six months ago, I decided to finally let go of my 
my government job. And throughout the last year or two, I had also sort of retrained. I went back to school to become a holistic nutrition health coach. So in the last sort of year and a half, I've also started up my own business. I do health coaching and customized meal plans. And I also have, you know, sell digital products on my website and I'm in the process of monetizing a food blog. So I've got lots of sort of uh, income streams in the works, even though I'm not sort of making like a full-time income off it yet. I decided sort of based on how my expenses were pretty low and I do have some runway from selling my house. And then I recently sort of retired from government and took that out. So I thought it was kind of the right time to sort of give my body a break and sort of pursue other things. Yeah, I would say I'm kind of partially there and I'm sort of working on sort of uh, increasing these income streams. And and yeah. Uh, yeah, to me, it sounds like you had your FU money and maybe mm-hmm. you're partway to Coast Fi or you're at Coast Fi at this point. Yeah, I'm like, I guess a partial FI is the term I always hear. I'm probably about a third of the way there. And based on how low I've gotten my my sort of monthly expenses right now, like I, you know, I probably have at least 10 plus years of runway. Yeah, I, I think with that, I feel comfortable sort of letting go of my government job and pursuing my own sort of interests and yeah, and also having more time to myself mm-hmm. and more flexibility, which is awesome. So I've heard a couple of our recent guests have said the same thing. Kay on one of our episodes, as well as Courtney, they are not worried at all during COVID, even though um, they have seen a drop in income and haven't been able to work as much as they wanted to. They felt totally okay. Is that how you're feeling at this point? I mean, I would think you have to be in order to let go of a full-time job to transition to online work. Yeah, for sure. It was it was quite stressful making the decision and finally coming to it. And there was definitely some fear when I first did it, you know, like, what will people think? Or what will I do if I run out of money? You know, all that kind of, what if I don't make as much as I want? But I realized that I was also just kind of driving my body into the ground, still sort of working full time or close to full time. And yeah, I kind of weighed out the pros and cons. And yeah, I kind of did some calculations to see that, yeah, I really do have like some pretty good runway here. And, you know, i I, I, don't, I sleep well at night now. So yeah, <laughs> there was a period where I may have not, but yeah, I'm doing good now. <laughs> Quick question to add into that is you decided to leave your job completely. You didn't go for a year, but you can get a year of absence after working there for that long. You decided that quitting full-time was better for you? Yeah, I uh, in the past, I've taken a year off to go back to school. So I did consider it, but yeah, I just, I wasn't feeling super passionate about the work. And I just, yeah, I just wanted to pursue my own stuff. And I I slowly went down sort of part-time hours and like over a couple years. So at the end there, I was only working three and a half hours a day. So it really wasn't like a huge leap to go from that to quitting completely. Right on. Chrissy won't want me to get into investments yet because I know there's lots of other interesting (laughs) things to bring up. But I do want to ask, because we're just talking about the end of your government work, you did mention in your communique with us that you decided to commute your pension. Yes. Did you have any, just maybe speak sort of quickly to that, that decision that you made and what gave you the confidence to do that or your reasoning behind it? Yeah, I'm 34 and I've been in the government since my early 20s. So also a lot of high earning years and only I own my house for about 10 years. So that helped as well. But yeah, in terms of why I decided to take my pension, 
because I had done so much learning over the past year or two, and, you know, we'll talk more about this later, but, you know, took my mutual funds out of RBC and now I'm doing my own investing. I just feel confident in the idea that I can do it myself. And I like the idea of sort of having that control over my money and seeing where it is and what it's invested in. And I mean, it's possible I may have been able to do that through the pension I never had in the past. So it's just like, I just give them my money and, and then it's somewhere and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I just, uh, I feel confident that I can probably do better myself. I don't know if I can, but I feel like I'd like to at least try. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, good for you because I think that's part of this journey too, right? Is as you get educated, it builds your confidence and uh, you feel much more comfortable doing those things. So yeah, right on. For sure. Mm-hmm. Chrissy, why don't you go so I don't jump all over the best so I want to dig a little bit more into your disability. Um, you you yeah. say that you're born without a left hand, and that's that's interesting in a lot of ways because you're the first guest that has uh, has mentioned that you have a disability. And I'm just wondering if you could tell our audience um, how that affects you financially, whether for better or worse. Um, what have you found living in Canada with a disability? How has that affected you? Yeah. So, I mean, right from the start, I was always involved in the war amps of Canada. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard them. You've seen their stickers on cars and all their key tags and stuff. So I feel super lucky to have grown up in Canada. They provided a lot of financial support for me as a younger person um, in terms of like education and computers and and just really social and emotional support as well. So that was really great when I was growing up. After school, like like I said, like I was a, I was always able to kind of work a regular job and I would have the odd accommodation here and there like certain assistive devices, but I was you know, pretty much fine with everything. Um I feel lucky I I was born without my left hand, but I do have most of my wrist or my, my whole wrist. And so I can still do a lot of things with my left arm as well. So it really wasn't until about, like I said, four years ago where I started getting overuse injuries in my dominant arm, which I have been warned about in the past. And I, I wish I could go back in time and I would done less. I also did a lot of freelance work in the past. So I'd work like an eight hour day and then I'd come home and work, you know, three or four hours on my computer doing freelance. And so I probably wore my good arm out a little <laughs> faster than I probably would have otherwise. But yeah, about four years ago, that was when I really realized that for the first time in my life, actually, that holy crap, like this disability could actually affect my ability to earn and and the ability to take care of myself, not only financially, but physically as well. And I mean, I'm lucky that, you know, it hasn't gotten to the point where I need like a lot of uh, additional help, but it has definitely changed my sort of physical capacity. Like I, I can still do everything I could do before. It just, I get a lot of chronic pain and, you know, there's only so much that I want to do because you know, I don't want to flare things up. So, but one positive thing though, that has come out of it is I am able to access uh, a disability tax credit every year. So I've been getting that since I was younger. I think that works out to about an $8,000 credit. Wow. And then I've also been able to access the RDSP, the Registered Disability Savings Plan. So that's been really great uh, as well. I, unfortunately, I didn't find out about it until about uh, six or seven years ago, but um, it's already, you know, been growing pretty nicely. Basically, for every sort of dollar I put in there, I think the government puts in three. 
And so each year they send me a letter and they say, here's what you can put in to get the maximum grant of this much. So for example, this year it was, you know, you can put in $5,000 and we'll give you, I think it was 10,500, which I guess now that I'm thinking about that, Wow. That doesn't, uh, that's not three times, two to but one. I'll have two to, to one. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's more like two to that's one. Yeah. Amazing. So now, yeah, you go ahead. I, yeah. I just was digging into the RDSP a little bit because I don't know anything about this. Does it function as a tax free uh, investment vehicle? You can self manage it the same way you could an RRSP? Yeah. Exactly. So um, originally I had it invested in mutual funds and We'll get into this more later, but I did pull everything out of mutual funds so that I can start investing on my own. But yeah, it works the same. You can invest it however. Okay. And are there age limits? Like, can you only start it from a certain age? Like, do you have to be an adult? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, because I didn't start it as a as a younger person, I'm not totally sure, but I don't see why you wouldn't be able to. I imagine lots of parents probably start them for their kids and start contributing earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and what about withdrawals? Like, are they like, like an RSV, do they, are you supposed, is the intention to wait until you're older to Yeah, withdraw? the intention is to wait. And it's, it's a bit different than RRSPs where actually I have to wait 10 years to be able to withdraw the full amount with grants. So if I was to do a withdrawal within that 10 years, then they would they would claw back some of the grants that they've okay. given me. So, okay. yeah, for me, um, I, I think it caps out at about $70,000, too. Oh, so it's like an RESP where there's a maximum grant amount. That yeah. Okay. And maximum contribution also. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I haven't, because I'm, I haven't sort of reached the top yet. I haven't yeah. really looked into it, but um, I mean, I plan to leave it in there for as long as I can. Any money that I need, you know, for emergency money or emergency fund, I keep elsewhere. So. Okay. This is really interesting. <laughs> so I missed that. Did I miss it, Chrissy, or did you ask that? Is it taxable on withdrawal? Oh, sorry. Uh, yes. I believe it is taxable on withdrawal and based on your your calendar year of income. Okay. And so that counts the grants. The grants are also taxable. So is it like an RSP, like anything you take out, the whole thing is taxable. Is that correct? I think so. But now that I'm saying this, I'm like, hmm, maybe I'm <laughs> wrong. We, I probably have to, yeah. We probably all research should have researched that. it a little more. That's okay. But, but it's still good to bring it up. <laughs> Chrissy, this is where we sh- say the show is for entertainment purposes only, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because someone will be listening and they'll be like, that's not that's right. Not right. <laughs> well, that's, that's the good thing when we hear about that. Yeah. The info is yeah. out there, we, but it's great that you're taking advantage and, you know, we'll, we can dig into the details another time. <laughs> For sure. So one more thing I wanted to ask about the RDSP then is how does that fit into your FIRE plan? You mentioned you're going to keep it for a long time, but at what point do you think you'll use it? Because it's going to be income dependent if you're paying tax on it. And we've talked in the FI community about having RRSP drawdown strategies. So you're paying minimum tax on it. Where does this sort of fit in down the road for you? Do you think? I mean, I've obviously the plan changes, but do you have a current plan? For sure. Yeah, it's a good question because um, right now over the next sort of two, three years, I imagine my income is going to be quite low, but I, I think it's a bit earlier for me to start drawing down on things. But um, once my, you know, all my sort of income streams start picking up, I do wonder about that because later on, then my income will start getting higher and higher every year. So 
I have to admit, I haven't totally planned that out yet. That's one part of Phi that I actually haven't really like spent a lot of time thinking about. I'm mostly sort of in like the accumulation phase and haven't even thought a bit about that, to be honest. But I imagine I'll probably, I won't draw down on it until probably around the same time I'm ready to draw down on my RRSPs. And do you have an idea of when you might reach FI? Like, are you? Do you have a goal in mind for what age? That if you're everything hoping? goes to plan, I hope by forty-five or fifty. Nice. So I guess ten or fifteen years from now. Yeah. And what about your boyfriend? <laughs> what does he yeah. think? What does he make of all this? <laughs> yeah, he's um like he has a really good government job as well. He's in just got into management, so he's pretty happy right now. He's sort of sitting on a pretty lucrative job and a uh, nice nice fat pension. So. It, yeah, I'm not really sure. He hasn't totally kind of gone all in on this. I'm kind of exploring it on my own. But the idea is that once my business is making a lot more income, that he would probably join me in my business. And then we could travel maybe or like we always love the idea of getting a fifth wheel and like moving to the island or, you know, traveling around. So I mean, we'll see what the future looks like now. But yeah, digital nomads, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice when yeah. not going to happen again. <laughs> and I, I just want to touch on this. You do mention that you also have some side hustles going on. And I think that's really cool because... I do. Yeah. <laughs> like it, in this day and age, it's so easy to have a side hustle. So can you just touch on that a little bit? Uh, what do you do just to supplement your income a little bit? Right now, because my business is not making like a full-time income, I'm also working at a health and nutrition store part-time. And then actually just recently in the Yukon, we got DoorDash. Mm -hmm. So I've also been doing some DoorDashing just for a couple extra bucks here and there. Yeah. Has that been worth it? Uh, yeah. That's what I want to know. Not really. Um, <laughs> okay. Like when you really calculate it out, I mean, it, it kind of depends on what people are tipping because you get uh. like $5 per delivery, but in Whitehorse, you know, we're pretty spread out. Yeah. So, you know, I could be driving to the suburbs and back and, and then if they don't tip, you literally only get $5. So, um, who doesn't tip? Yeah, That's just wrong. it works. I know <laughs> it's crazy. Lots of people don't, but, <sighs> but then other people, like I got like an $18 tip once wow. on like McDonald's, like it was, it's nuts. So I'm not really sure, but it kind of depends on the day. Some days are more are lucrative than than others. But you keep doing it just because it's, it kind, it's yeah. kind of fun. And it's, it's something to do yeah. too. So mm -hmm. it's pretty low impact on my body. I just kind of drive around and pick up food and drop it off. So <laughs> It does sound appealing sometimes when I think, well, ah, it'd be kind of cool. It's yeah. kind of a, you know, you've got some freedom and it's, yeah. it's not something that takes a lot of brain power. Like you can kind of zone out, listen exactly. to podcasts while you're doing it. So yes, yeah. it probably only works out to maybe minimum wage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although our minimum wage here is decent, you know, it's like $16 an hour, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's but. pretty good. <laughs> you brought up driving around. So while we're on this topic, tell us a little bit about vehicles. Are they cheaper yeah, there? So Do you go through them faster? The winter's harder on them. Is that change your costs? The winter is definitely a little bit harder on them. Um, we get a lot of rock chips here. I think that I've I've even heard, and this may just be speculation, I'm not sure if it's true, but that when you get car insurance in the Yukon, it doesn't protect your windshield, which I think in other places it does. Other than that, yeah, just, you know, changing from winter tires to summer tires, although a lot of people do all seasons, but it's it's a lot smarter to have proper winter tires here so you don't get stuck everywhere. <laughs> so have you improved your spending on vehicles since you sort of got on the path to FI? 
Yeah, I have. So in the past, I was kind of always in the market for a new car, you know, kind of like a cell phone when your plan runs out, you can get a new one and then you upgrade. But um, I've been actually driving the same 2009 Ford Focus for over 12 or 13 years or yeah, I don't know. Maybe the math's not correct yet on that. But, <laughs> well, it can't um, be 13 because that's not long enough. <laughs> okay. Good point. So 12? 12 I in 2009. But, you, yeah. Yeah. But I bought it in 2008. So anyways, so I've been driving that and many, many times I've had to sort of hold myself back from going out and buying a new one. For sure now I know that I would never finance a car again unless it was 0%. And even then I don't think I would. I like this idea of sort of purchasing a car that's within the last five years and just purchasing it privately. Um, But so far my car's sort of still holding up. So I'm going to basically drive it into the ground. And uh, yeah, I, I got rid of my collision insurance and I just, just the bare minimum, really. My insurance is like $34 a month. Wow. And wow. now I live pretty close to downtown. So my gas is, you know, I bet you no more than about $80 a month. So yeah. all in, that's what my car costs me now. That's incredible. That's really low insurance in yeah. Vancouver. Yes. Our insurance costs are high. It's crazy oh. here. Yeah, that's that's amazing. It's always good to hear that once you sort of dig into the FI journey, you start knocking down the costs on the car. And I love how you mentioned earlier that you have roommates in the house as well that brings down your housing costs. That's that's awesome. Yeah, we've got a three-bedroom half a duplex we live in and we've got um two roommates <laughs> there's four of us that's yeah. impressive but we usually get friends so it's it's nice and i think during covid it's actually been really nice to have people around to mm-hmm. hang out with and visit with so mm-hmm. yeah it, it makes things a little easier i think has that brought your housing costs down to zero or how is that affecting you Yeah. So I made the decision not to sort of buy into my partner's house. So I am just sort of living here. And basically the deal we have is that if, if we have no roommates, I pay 800. If we have one roommate, I pay anywhere from three to 500. And if we have two roommates, I pay zero. So that's been absolutely amazing. The last year I have not really had to pay rent. And I think my sort of fixed monthly expenses are less than $200. Um, I got my cell phone bill down to about $45. It used to be around 90 or 100. So yeah, it's it's been pretty amazing. Um, Chris, my partner, he still pays a little bit on the mortgage because I don't think he gets the full amount. But he was smart enough to, he pays weekly on his mortgage. So he was able to at least cut down his mortgage significantly and pay a lot less interest. And when he bought his house, he's owned it for, I think, almost 15 years. He bought this place for about 200 And I think now it's probably worth over 400 So things are looking good mm-hmm. for him as well. That's awesome. Even 400 sounds cheap for us, hey, Chrissy? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Deal. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great planning. Sensible. Let's talk a little bit about food because we've talked about cars and houses. So, and I think it's super interesting that you do health coaching, you do customized meal plans, you do pre-made meal plans, recipe books. Like, let's talk a little bit about food because that is a big cost for all of us. Do you, I don't know, Chrissy, where do we even take this? I'm like super interested to hear like what's the perfect fi yeah. frugal meal plan give us something <laughs> give us something give us two meals to go with or yeah something. Do, does that affect your work dude does fi and the cost of food affect how you advise people on their diet you know 
I have to admit, not really. When I usually the way I approach it is really more like what's best for their health. Mm. Our food costs are pretty high here, I would say. I think they're maybe slightly more expensive than, say, BC. But uh, I have to admit, I am a not a huge spender, but I, I spend, I don't know if lavishly is the word, <laughs> but I think good quality food is super important to me. So I think in my FI journey, um, actually, it's I read the book by uh, Ramit, the I will Ramit, make you ri- or I will make you rich or yeah. teach you to be rich. Yeah. And I really liked his approach of like spend lavishly on what you value and then just like cut ruthlessly on what you don't. Yep. And I've always like really kind of resonated with that. So I don't really try a lot to save money with food. I mean, I do now. I, I have to admit, I used to just sort of buy whatever I wanted and not even look at the price. Now I will, you know, if I see a sale and I know it's something I eat a lot, I'll buy it or, you know, I'll buy more meat in bulk instead of buying like two pieces of chicken at a time. So there's definitely some changes I've made over time. But but yeah, I, I do spend quite a bit on food and I'm kind of okay with it. <laughs> yeah, we're. I mean, we don't spend a lot on food because like, we manage to economize a lot by buying in bulk and doing all kinds of things. DIYing as much of the food process as we can, you know, yeah. prepping and meal planning, all that, that saves a for lot sure. of money. But yeah, we're, we're the same in that we, we look for food that we like and, you know, we don't always yeah. put cost first. Yeah. And that being said, you just reminded me when you said meal prep. So me and my partner, once a week we do meal prep on Sundays. And so we do make a lot of stuff in bulk. So I think that really brings our costs down as well. We don't eat out a ton, mostly because, you know, there's not a lot of places I, I like to eat here, um, just that have sort of healthier options. So yeah, that meal prepping, we have actually like a massive stand up freezer and two fridges in our house. And part of that is due to the roommates, but in truth, most of it is because we prep so much. And I think we own over 120 glass containers. <laughs> so, you know, when we have a lot prepped, when our cupboard is like empty of dishes and, <laughs> yeah. you know, we need to do meal prep when we are like overflowing <laughs> dishes out of our cupboards. So. so what do the roommates make of all this? You know, all your frugal tendencies, because to us, that sounds totally normal. But for a lot of people, they're like, you're crazy. You know? Yeah, I think, you know, like I, when I got into meal prepping, it really was more just so that I could eat healthy and not spend hours and hours of time in the kitchen per day. I don't think when I first approached it, it was really anything to do with money. But I guess over time, I realized that it, it actually has mm-hmm. been a huge money saver in the end. Yeah, I mean, they think it's pretty funny that we have, you know, two fridges and a massive stand-up freezer. It's a little ridiculous, but... <laughs> it works. <laughs> Give me an example of a meal that you meal prep that's a nice sort of economy meal that uh, that our listeners could tackle. So I'm like a big meat eater, so I don't know how <laughs> economical it gets. But yeah, I mean, I would say I make a lot of soups. So like the other day, for example, I made like a a chicken bacon soup with like kohlrabi noodles. Um, I think altogether it cost about $32 in groceries. And I got, uh, I think it was five or six servings. So I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get down to like, you know, two, three, four, five dollars a meal. Mm-hmm. But if I'm less than 10, I'm I'm doing good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a restaurant meal is at least 15 once you add in the tax and tips. So, you know, you're feeding yeah. that already. Yep. 
Yeah, I don't think I get down to – well, I do get down to the $2 meal because I don't eat breakfast anymore. I'm on doing the uh, intermittent fasting, so that's a free meal. (laughs) (laughs) I just got to bring the average down on the other two. But yeah, that's pretty cool. We definitely do a lot of that batch cooking as well, and uh, we like chilies and soups. And definitely – my wife's got a killer butternut squash soup that she does now. It's all veggie Mm. and and then blended and thickened thickened with lentils. Oh, man, it's good. Oh, if we could only get better at making sourdough bread, because I love the sourdough with the oh, soup. Oh, me too. I, that, <laughs> it's like having a pet, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. That sourdough <laughs> starter. Yeah, exactly. We have too many fermentations going on in the house yeah. already, because we've been making our own ginger beer. I'm making beer again, and cider, and then she's doing uh, kombucha as well. So there's uh, a lot of things that are <laughs> percolating. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Can you tell us uh, when exactly did your FI journey start and uh, what did you do when you discovered it? How did you change your money approach? Yeah, so it was interesting. Um, my FI journey kind of all started coming together around just just before COVID hit. And I was already sort of starting to think about it even before that, just because of you know not being sure what my future looks like and what my money situation could look like. So I was starting to sort of come to terms with the idea that I really needed to start sort of learning more about investing and sort of understanding what my money was doing and where it was sitting. And then of course, COVID hit. And so, you know, I was one of those people who kind of freaked out and pulled all my money out of the market. But at that time, I actually didn't have a ton of money in the market. And it was through mutual funds, through my bank, which, to be honest, I actually had no idea what they were actually in. I'd never even looked at the mutual fund. Like, what was it invested in? Like, no idea. Um, And anyone I had sort of worked with in the past at the bank was not overly helpful. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of like a reset point for me, I think. So it's been kind of an interesting journey since COVID hit of just sort of learning about investing. But I also think now it's quite different as well in some ways or could be in the future. And so it's been interesting sort of learning about traditional, you know, personal finance up until this point and then sort of what it could look like in the future. So I've just been sort of, you know, sitting on most of my money in cash right now and slowly starting to invest in ETFs over time. And I just went through the process of, pulling all my uh, money out of RBC and into RBC Direct so that I can start doing my own investing and choose my own ETFs and things that I wasn't able to access before through my bank. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at currently and um, just sort of slowly dollar cost averaging in. Okay, let's let's tackle that one because that's a favorite in the community. Do you, yeah. Did you consider <laughs> the lump sum investing? Cause you're I did. De- okay, so what... What made you decide? Yeah, I mean, I just keep hearing everyone talk about how overvalued things are right now. And, you know, it seems like everything's looking real nice because of all the stimulus money. And I think a lot of new investors are pouring into the market and, you know, investing their stimulus cash and everything like looks real nice right now. But I I guess I'm one of those not crazy conspiracy theorists, but like I, I definitely feel like at some point we are going to, I mean, this can't go on forever, I don't think. So I'm kind of just uh, slowly dollar cost averaging so that I can sort of balance out that risk over time. I do actually kind of think that at some point when all the stimulus ends that things are going to go back down and I would rather get in at that time 
And I may consider in the future sort of putting more of my money in sort of all at once, if that was the case. Um, but for now, I'm just kind of slowly inching my way in. And that helps me sleep a little better at night right now. Um, my fi- my old financial advisor, who was actually like a really solid guy, the most recent one I had, and I don't think he would give me bad advice, but he definitely kind of encouraged me to put it all in at once. And I kind of convinced him that that was not the way for me. And um, I had we had been dollar cost averaging in before I pulled everything out and moved it over. So yeah, I right now dollar cost averaging, I think makes sense for me in the future, it's possible, I might put larger sums in, but I kind of want to see what happens here. I think we haven't really sort of come out of the the woods yet and seen what, you know, what the future looks like in terms of investing. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said for the psychological benefit of dollar cost averaging, like numbers aside, like I'm a numbers person and I'm, I'm one for throwing it all in as soon as you have it. But Mm -hmm. for a lot of people that doesn't work and that will make you actually blow up your plan if you do it that way, when you know that that's not in your nature and you can't go against that, it's better to know yourself and do it in a way that's going to be comfortable for you so that you'll be successful. And so what, if the math doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, it's fine at least you're in the game and you're staying in the game and comfortable with it. For sure. Like I know there's potentially more opportunity for making, you know, more money over time with putting it all in at once. But I also fear that if I put it all in at once, especially right now, then, you know, what if it goes down for multiple years and, you know, I, I know everyone's just like, stick it out, you know, just keep holding, just stick it out. Time in the market, time uh, in the market. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. This COVID thing might've, might flip everything on its head and maybe the future of investing looks different. I don't know. Uh, there's a couple things that I'm trying to remember now, but you know, one of them is oh, this time it's different. And then the one, the other the flip side of that is the, the risk is saying that this time's different, but it's not <laughs> yeah. going to be a different type thing. We don't know. Nobody yeah. knows, right? It's all, yeah, it's, we it's don't all, know. It's all That's backward true. looking. And I think Chrissy, you made a great point there. It's all about your own psychology. This is your journey, not anybody mm-hmm. else's. And the math can say one thing, but it doesn't matter if that's not how you feel. Mm-hmm. For yeah. sure. Right? Totally. Yeah. And I'm okay with being, you know, I'll still be young at retirement if I hit my goal, but I won't be super young like some people, you know, mm-hmm. retiring in their 30s. That won't be me. We're not, but. we're not super young. <laughs> not at all anymore. <laughs> but are you retired yet? <laughs> well, coast. Let's go with coast. Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool. Okay. So you've got a whole bunch of accounts now, right? You've got your TFSA going. You've got an RDSP, which is one that most of us don't have. You've got a lira as well because you commuted your pension and yep. maybe an rrsp going as well i don't know so you got four to manage yep. four that you're going to manage yourself now which is a lot to take on when you're at the beginning of your investing journey do you plan to keep the same thing in all accounts to keep it simple as far as investments yeah i think so yeah so i've i've got a quest trade account where i don't have a ton of money i kind of call it my fun money I have it in there and I'm kind of investing in like random weird niche ETFs and <laughs> sounds like um, someone I know. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of where I like have my fun and you know, I also invest in some uh, individual stocks as well there. Um and so that's kind of where I play around, but um in terms of like all my other ones, so my RRSP, I do have a regular RRSP, my Lira, my RDSP. I'm pretty sure that all of those, I'm just going to continue on what I've been doing, which is just dollar cost averaging into 
I use uh, VEQT, mm-hmm. the total stock market. Mm-hmm. And then I also have some in uh, VFV, which is like the S&P 500, which I realize that's a little bit heavy on the U.S. side. I had been putting money into bonds, but I don't know, just with all the podcasts I've been listening to lately, nobody seems to be super interested in bonds right now. So yeah, we'll see. I, I may do some type of fixed income though, whether that be like GICs or bonds or yeah, but I probably won't do like 40%. I originally thought I would do 40 and I think uh-huh. I would probably go for less than that. Yeah. 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 I think the, the important part is, you know, you're at the beginning of your investing journey. So keeping it simple, a program that you can stick to. And if it's like VEQT is well diversified, we've all talked about that before. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I can hold that in all my accounts and get good exposure. And you can always sort of customize as things go along, right? And you're just dollar cost yeah. averaging in. So I think that's good. It's a nice, simple strategy. It's going to keep you motivated and keep you on track, right? And then you don't even have to yeah. do any rebalancing. You just, you just put it away. For sure. I love that idea. And I've also been sort of looking at Oh, I'm pretty sure they're called Evolve. And I think they're out of BC. Have you heard of those guys? They have some really interesting sort of progressive like Hmm. ETFs where, you know, you know, one might track uh, like um, automatic cars. And um, anyway, I just thought it's pretty neat what they're doing. Um, I have a feeling they're younger because they're all very like interested in you know, where things are going in the future and not just sort of like your standard total stock market. Like they're like, hey, you know, things are going to blow up in, you know, self-driving cars (laughs) and renewable energy and Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies and things like that. So I might look a a bit at that too. Yeah, I think that kind of has to go in the, the satellite part of your portfolio. This is going to be a very small amount because it's really, it's Mm -hmm. all, it's all speculation and you're paying pretty high fees for those. And I think the majority, it, it's definitely because it's so much more accessible to everybody now. And it's been, it was so popular in the last year that, you know, it's easy to get wrapped up in the, the excitement of it. Right. And, and want to be involved mm-hmm. in it. We're all somewhat guilty of that, but I think we need to be careful to keep our core FI portfolio secured and globally diversified. And then we've for talked sure. about it before. If people want to have a little bit of fun money to do other things with, then yeah, there's lots of interesting things out there for sure. I'm I'm the last person to talk. Chrissy knows I've got like <laughs> exactly. trying to get one of everything. <laughs> yeah, <you're crazy. laughs> so Tara, can you explain a little bit more? I want to question, why do you have an account at Questrade when you have RBC Direct Investing? Uh, why have two different brokerages? Yes, good question. So I opened my Questrade account probably almost two years ago. So it was my, my first little sort of foray into investing. Um, and at that time, all my other money was sort of locked up in, in RBC through a financial planner. So at that point, it was just the quickest, easiest way for me to like start investing. So I started there. And then recently, I just decided to move most of my sort of RSPs and Lira and all that into RBC Direct. Um, that's probably where I'll do most of my investing. I've noticed you can, instead of paying $10, like I know Questrade is cheaper in terms of buying and selling for the costs, but um, RBC Direct, I can actually just pay the 10 bucks with my travel points, which I'm not uh, using right now. So I was kind of like, that's okay to me right now. Is that $10 a, yeah. a buy? Yeah. So that's and the sell. same. As, I'm, I'm with TD, it's the same. So yeah. Yeah. So if I was, you know, every month I'm doing, if I'm dollar cost averaging, you know, 
a certain amount into VEQT, a certain amount into VFE and a certain amount into like a bond index or, or whatever, then yeah, that's like $30 a month. So I, I, yeah, I need to think that out over time because I definitely don't want to be paying more over the long term. Um, yeah. That's going to eat into your returns big time because you've got the, sure. you've got that payment on the other side too. You know, if you decide to change funds or whatever, you've got that transactional yes. cost too. That's why most of us are using Questrade for the ETF purchases because that saves you a substantial mm-hmm. amount of transaction costs. For sure. Yeah. I have to admit too, like uh, seeing that CDIC insurance thing on RBC makes me feel better. Although I, I haven't fully looked into, I'm sure there are some protections around Questrade as well. Well, CDIC is deposit insurance. So that's only going to cover you for savings accounts. Oh, okay. There's no coverage. Yeah. yeah, there's no coverage on investments accounts, but there is a coverage that protects you from the broker itself going out of the business. Custodian. The okay. custodian. Mm-hmm. So the if you're with- yeah, exactly. Thank you. If you're with Questrade and Questrade no longer exists, you still get all your shares. That's the protection you have for that. Oh, okay. But CDIC is just going to be like your EQ Bank savings account. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Didn't know that. That's good to know. Okay. So I guess there's really no um, no difference, I suppose, than using RBC Direct no. versus Questrade versus no. others. There is a difference. Okay. That's ten dollars well, a the trade. Cost. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes sure. that's that's the big yeah, difference. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So at some point I might uh amalgamate all those together. And it would simplify your life too, just to be all I at know. one brokerage, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well for sure. See, and I I always want to bring this up too, right? Because none of us start off with a perfect FI plan. Yeah. Like it's an evolution, yeah. right? So it's like I'm there for a little bit and they're like, well, I can I can optimize that. So then you do the next step, the next optimization. And then, you know, it's like don't try and get everything right at the beginning. Let yourself for give sure. yourself time to learn more, to educate, and then and then you can make changes along the way. It's it's not all or nothing. Yeah. I don't think yeah, I think you're right that looking at my sort of path to FI, it's definitely been sort of up, back, sideways, you know, it's <laughs> pretty random, but for sure in the end, I think it'll all come together. I think too, why RBC Direct uh, interested me was that like I already bank with RBC. So it's very easy to access my investment accounts right from there. Whereas with Questrade, I find it a bit of a pain to like transfer money in and out. And yeah, yeah. anyways, maybe I just, you know, learning how to use, how to use it more comfortably over time. will Systems. Sort that all out. Yeah, it's putting systems (laughs) in place, for sure. It is. It's systemizing things, yeah. Yeah. Now, I just have one more question to make it more actionable for our readers, or listeners, I should say. Um, How did you learn how to DIY invest? Because we talked about how you found personal finance, and then you just started investing. But obviously, you you had to have gained some knowledge somewhere to learn how to do it. So how did you find that? And then how did you jump from personal finance into FIRE? I jumped from personal finance into fire, I think mostly just because I was just consuming as much content and books and podcasts as I could around personal finance and fire comes up so much. And as soon as I kind of heard about it, I was just like, this sounds amazing. And (laughs) why would anyone work forever when they could just retire early? And so it totally changed the way I was approaching my life um, and my decisions and, and all that and my spending. Sorry, what was your first question there? Uh, well, I wanted to know how you learned how to invest because you're talking about personal finance and then you found FIRE and where was it that you figured out how to DIY invest? Because that doesn't just happen. It's it's not really something that's covered in the basic personal finance book. So how did you figure that part out? Yeah, so I actually uh, spent a lot of time on YouTube. There's a surprising amount of tutorials on how to use Questrade. 
um, how to, how to buy, how to sell, how to, um, you know, do like Norbert's gambit. So I've done a lot of that and with exchanging from Canadian over to American and back, I would say, yeah, mostly YouTube tutorials. And then over time, just podcasts as well. Like I would, um, obviously they don't go through exactly how to invest. Um, but they talk a lot about which ETFs that was something that took me quite a while to sort of understand and decide on which ones I wanted to invest in. And it was really just like people mentioning them and me going and Googling them and looking them up. And I have a notebook that I just kind of titled like, you know, finances. And I've just been sort of taking notes for, you know, the last year or two. And, you know, eventually I started seeing a lot of the same ETFs over and over and over like VEQT for sure was like a huge one. Yeah. And then I just kind of researched them and then I figured out how to use Questrade and then I kind of just went from there and it also gets a little easier over time as you kind of get into it. And yeah, I find it pretty straightforward now. Yeah. And I, I think that's something I try to stress to people who are new to the financial journey, whether it's fire or, or just personal finance, it, it just get started, you know, with the, the most yeah. basic stuff, because it seems overwhelming and it seems like a ton of stuff to learn, but you have to get started and you just take it one step at a time. And before you know it, you're like Tara and you're like, this is no big deal. <laughs> I can do this. Right. Yeah. And now, like even some of my friends and my partner's sister, like I've helped them start up some investment accounts and start investing in Bitcoin and, and all that. So, and Whoa, Bitcoin's the other one too. That was uh, speculating. Yes. Yeah. Well, Hey, I was, <laughs> I warned them ahead of time that, uh, anything that they lose is not, should not come back to me. <laughs> this is totally their own risk to take. So I'm definitely not pushing people there, but if they're interested in it, I'm happy to like help them out. So, <laughs> well, that's, I think, you know, it's nice to see that finance discussion is becoming a little more normal, normalized everywhere, right? I think we've gone through this pandemic that shook everybody up and now people are a little more interested. They've got maybe a little bit extra savings to put to work and it's good. I'm glad this discussion's out there. Mm -hmm. When friends see you're doing stuff yourself, they generally are interested, right? So, For sure. Yeah. yeah especially when they used to remember me as someone who was very much an impulse spender and, <laughs> you know, not a saver. So yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, good for you. It's it's awesome. I'm glad you're on the journey along with the rest of us in Canada and that we have our first guest from the Yukon. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I, I think our audience could take a lot from your story. There's just so much there. You've come so far in quite a short time, I have to say, you know, yes. just from the start of COVID. And the thing that keeps standing out to me through this past year where we've been interviewing people is how resilient everyone has been. And, you know, a lot of people at the beginning, the naysayers are saying uh, COVID is going to destroy the fire community. Everyone's going to go back to their jobs and, and have a terrible time. And we've proven it's the opposite. We're more resilient mm -hmm. because of the financial security we've worked for and provided for ourselves. And your story just proves that, you know, it, during we're still in the middle of a pandemic and you've been you've given up a full time job, a government job mm -hmm. with a pension. <laughs> Most people yep. hang on to forever. And you've for been sure. able to transition to something that suits your lifestyle and, and your physical health better. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Great transition. Yeah. It's it's amazing. And I'm glad we could share your story. Thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've been getting value from our content, please support us in the following ways. Leave us a review and subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Tell your friends and family about us. 
or use our referral links at explorefycanada.ca forward slash recommendations. All of our show notes can be found at explorefycanada.ca. You can also find us on our other websites, figarage.ca or eatsleepbreathefy.com. Our show is edited and mixed by Max Desmarais at Fix Audio. That's F-I-X-A-U-D dot I-O. Episode transcripts were created in otter.ai.